been in meetings with um, some organizations where the board of directors blatantly, I have no idea what the organization does. I don't yeah. know how I can help. I joined for networking. I've heard I know. That. And I'm I like, are you, are you kidding me right now? Like, <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Denton's. We are the largest law firm in the world with offices in more than 200 locations across 80 countries available to support you everywhere you do business. We're a law firm that embraces change and can help you grow, protect, operate, and finance your organization, which is why Dentons is organized to offer more than just legal insight. We're here to help you find business solutions in a seamless fashion across the globe. Hi, everyone. My name is Heather Barnhouse, partner and lawyer in the Edmonton office. Welcome to my podcast, where I explore the topic of women in entrepreneurship and leadership and the ecosystem supporting the growth of this segment. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Young-Crook. She's an innovator and change maker. She does this through her consulting work, charity work, and her e-commerce platforms. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm great. It's so great to have you here. To get us started, can you give our listeners a little bit of background about you? I am a married mother of three. Uh, I am Algonquin um, and mixed heritage, so I'm also Italian, and I'm sure English is in there somewhere. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, I was in the charitable sector for 15 years, almost 16. Uh, During that time, I would say the last maybe four years, I'd started a few um, side businesses, um, especially during the pandemic. So I'd start trying to like, instead of complaining about things that were happening, I decided I would try to mitigate it in some sense. And a lot of people were upset about things being closed and a lot of indigenous entrepreneurs weren't able to sell their products. Um, So I came up with the idea of Shop Indigenous Holiday Market, which is a Facebook. Um, It has just over 87,000 members. Wow. So um, Indigenous people can sell their products there uh, for women, two-spirit, non-binary, and trans. Um, so that went really well. And from that came Indigimal, which was um, an online platform specific for Indigenous people to sell their items. So uh, that kept me pretty busy during the pandemic. And then most recently, I'm no longer in the charity um, charitable sector in my role, which was as a CEO. I'm actually now a consultant, and I help other foundations, nonprofits, Um, Indigenous organizations that are all trying to make change and improve the conditions for Indigenous entrepreneurs. That's very exciting. And there's obviously there's a lot there, lots of lots of things to unpack. I want to focus a little bit on the uh, sort of in the in the the nonprofit or the charitable sector that you've alluded to, um, because, of course, I work with with many organizations, with many entrepreneurs, and often entrepreneurs will start uh, a nonprofit. So they'll start a business that they think is just going to be a little bit of a side gig, or they want to do it for a particular charitable reason. And so that's the stepping stone in, into how they get into business. And sometimes it continues that way. And then sometimes they, you know, expand it into a, a for-profit, but I think lots of people are familiar with the nonprofit space, at least superficially. Um, but I think where many organizations uh, kind of get themselves into trouble a little bit is when they don't have the knowledge or the sophistication about really what it takes to run a nonprofit. And, and maybe they're unaware of some of the consequences of not uh, kind of staying, you know, coloring in the lines, if you will, with, with the nonprofit. So can you just tell us a little bit about what your experience is working with those nonprofits and maybe some of the the challenges that they've run into that has led you to, to help them and, and to, to think about, you know, sort of how they, they level up and, and just, just get, give us a little bit of background about that. 
It is such a loaded question. Um, I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So from the perspective of you could have, you know, when you're starting a nonprofit, you know, you Google it, you're like, I just want to be able to give back and obviously, you know, make some money. So if you start a nonprofit, you become the ED just so you can make some money. No one's ever getting rich from this. Um, At least if you're doing it properly and ethically. So, (laughs) you know, you start this out and you have some friends that are like-minded and they're like, you know what, we'll be on your board of directors. And I think that's where it really starts to go downhill. Um, It can. Yeah. And a lot of it comes down to most people don't have the knowledge of, you know, what it means to be on a board of directors and what your actual legal and fiduciary requirements are to be on a board of directors. And, you know, Google's a great thing. And, you know, the CRO website we all know is very confusing and complex. There's nothing out there that really gives you a lot of information. And when you're starting a nonprofit, in most cases, it's not like a millionaire always just starting these nonprofits. It's somebody who has maybe 5,000 in their bank. They don't necessarily have the money to hire a lawyer to ask some questions and to clarify information. So I find in those situations, it's always good to, first of all, um, look for any kind of training. Like there's small amounts of training out there. Uh, it's not yeah. overly expensive. Like I've taken at least, you know, 15 courses on governance and policy just for myself to make sure that I was making the right decisions as a you know CEO and president and that I wasn't doing anything that would have legal repercussions to me. Right. Um, the best thing you want, like the most important thing you want to do is to make sure you are safe and that if they're, you know, and then the other thing is um, having insurance. A lot of people don't realize I know. how insurance is for a board of directors. Um, right. Like I, I, I just, I'm always baffled at how many people don't have that. Yeah. And, you know, what that means even, and even working with the writer for that, like your, you know, insurance writer um, to make sure it's actually covering what needs to be covered and that you're not going with the cheapest option that leaves you with the highest risk. That's right. That's right. And that happens quite a bit. So, you know, also working with them, making sure that um, you're not on the hook for anything. Like uh, in a lot of cases, you know, you have these people that come on boards, especially if a board that's been established for quite some time. It's not usual that you'll get a board of directors that, you know, is doctorates and lawyers and accountants like off the bat. Like usually it's just people that are in the sector. Yep. Um, So when you have these people with designations that are on your board, you know, and they're you know rightfully expected to be an expert. Like, you know, you're a lawyer and, you know, this is your field. Like if I had you on a board of directors for information and training and policy for businesses, I would expect that your knowledge, you know, comes with some level of expertise that, right. you know, and you're not going to put us at risk by doing something that wouldn't, you know, fall within the legal boundaries, I guess. Correct. Um, so a lot of the times you have these boards and it could be anybody, you know, especially like those with like CPAs and, um, any level of any designation, right. Any level of expertise, especially in the finance like designation. So when you have these people that come on the boards, you know, and they want to help and they genuinely do. And they always, you know, most of them come from a good place, obviously. Um, I don't think they realize that when you're in that role, you're expected to have knowledge of finance. You're expected to have knowledge of the CRA and how things work. So whether that means that your staff is, you know, a contractor or your staff is actually an employee and what that means and the difference, um, what you can and cannot expense, you know, what you can and cannot approve. Um, Also finance policies, you know, sometimes like I've been asked to be on many boards and I'll ask them, you know, like, hey, can I see your policies? Can I see your bylaws? Like just any information, your financials. Um, And more often than not, like a lot of them don't have any policies. Yeah. And, you know, it just it's it's scary like it's not you know and again it's not because people are coming from a bad place it's genuinely they just don't know yeah 
And yep. uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, you know, it's more harmful than anything. And, you know, ignorance only gets you so far and Siri doesn't care if you don't know. Unfortunately, you know, ignorance of the law is not an excuse, right? And and I think your your comment is really uh, insightful, where you where people come from a, a really good place. They they genuinely believe in the mission or the vision or the values of the organization that they you know want to help. And sometimes it's really difficult to say to them, you know, I know you want to volunteer, and that's and that we, you know we commend you for for doing that. But your volunteerism is not appropriate at the board level, maybe you need to be be involved in the organization in some other capacity where the risk to the organization isn't as great by you not having the skill set. Or alternatively, the organization may get to the point where if it's, you know, if it's a very popular organization and they want to take different points of view, where the organization can build a little bit of a governance training program um, for people who are interested in um, eventually being on the board, they can level up a little bit in terms of taking some, some, you know, some training over time so that when people step onto the board, at least there, there's some degree of common knowledge and people understand what their, you know, their role is, what their fiduciary duty is and, and, you know, what is expected of them. And I think it's a really, a really tough thing for an organization to say, okay, volunteer, thank you so much, but no, uh, because, <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, we we're, we're trying to uh, make sure that we have the the correct skill sets. I know lots of very sophisticated boards, publicly traded companies, they have mandates that require that there be certain skill sets reflected on the board, and sometimes that's done in the way of a a skills matrix. But often, I think people have a, a bit of a different expectation, rightly or wrongly, at the nonprofit level because they're just so excited that people believe in their mission and that they want to sort of take on some some of the the responsibility that I think sometimes uh, people let that those standards slide a little bit and that can get them into trouble. What's your experience if people if charities, for example, aren't being governed ap- appropriately, what's what's what are some of the consequences? Why is it such a problem? It is. It's such a problem in the sense I actually what before I got to that, I want to say one thing I, you know, I've always kind of hated is um with the designation for board of directors, like for the for-profit, a lot of them last for, especially publicly traded. Like if you wanted to get on a big sure. board, right? Yep. Charitable um, law for board of directors is so different yet there's no stature for it, but there's more repercussions. I know. Like, I don't understand. Like there should be something out there that you could be, I'm designated to be on a charitable board of directors. Like there should right. be that sort of training. Um, but in, in the sense to go back to the other question. Yeah. Um, things that can happen, you know, in a lot of um, boards and nonprofit world, even just like a nonprofit board, not a charitable board, yeah. um, board of directors can be paid for stuff if they're an expert, right? So again, yep. if you're having this organization, you're going to want experts. It just makes sense. Um, so a lot of the times, you know, they can get paid and it's fine as long as, you know, you did your pro- your due diligence, you did an RFP, whatever, you know, and the yep. board was aware of it. You were not a part of the vote, just basic information. And that's for a nonprofit, for a charitable board. Um, you know, again, you have these experts and, you know, people want, you know, they see an opportunity, whether it's a project or it's just something that falls into their line of work and their expertise, you know, they're going to obviously want to be like, well, you know, I've donated so much time to this organization. I know the organization better than most people, but then they miss all the steps of what it means to be a paid person. Right. Um, so whether that means doing your due diligence for an RFP, which, you know, most policies will have that, or it's just common sense to most. 
um, making sure you remove yourself from how the monies would be dispersed, right. you know, making sure that um, all the protocols that, you know, you need to do for the, um, a charitable board member to be paid are being met. And there is a list on the CRA website. Like it's very detailed, um, obviously yep. it took me 20 minutes to read it, but <laughs> there's so much information there that you just, you actually just Google it and it's on the CRA website. So, you know, things like that, that's a big one. Um, another one is not really knowing what your role is. Like there's operational boards, there's governance boards yep. and, you know, governance is a word that I feel it's almost like the word reconciliation where people just use it and have no idea what it actually means or implementation of it. And I see it a lot. And I think, you know, with having a governance board, you're still overseeing things. You still cannot play ignorance. You should still be reviewing financial statements. Of course. They'll be meeting, you know, quarterly. Um, that's the other thing is meeting and making sure you're meeting your quorums and passing your motions, Right. Um, but doing all of those things. And you should still be aware of what the, like the organization is doing as a whole. Like I've been in meetings with um, some organizations where the board of directors blatantly, I have no idea what the organization does. I don't yeah. know how I can help. I joined for networking. I've heard I know. that. And I'm I like, are you, are you kidding me right now? Like, <laughs> um, so things like that, um, especially an organization that is in the process of growing pains, you really need to have people on board that really understand what their role is and how that looks. Like I've had, I've seen lawyers on boards and, you know, for, of course, I would think like they would know, like they're a lawyer, you know, um, but they still don't understand and they still don't meet their, you know, fiduciary requirements because either ignorance is bliss or they heard from someone they didn't have to do something or, you know, like for my sector, it's the Moffitt and Telegraph. And I always hear like, well, my aunt did this and my uncle. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. And neither does CRA. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter that they got away with it. Essentially, right. like it doesn't mean you're going to get away with it. So, yeah. you know, it's just so important. I think it's, I think it's really, that's a really good point too, that, you know, sort of getting away with it and people, people don't intend to get away with things. They sometimes just are genuinely uh, uninformed or they don't know. Uh, and, and obviously once you, you learn something, you can, you can do better. But I think that um, because of some of the uh, scandals or some of the, you know, high profile governance failures that we've seen, and it seems like every day in the paper, you can read about another one, not, not all in the not-for-profit world, but there's a, there's a bit of a heightened uh, awareness or a bit of a spotlight on governance and in particular on the charitable sector and in, and the nonprofit sector. And, and I think that um, people are, are, are becoming more aware or certainly CRA is becoming more aware of the potential for things to go wrong. And so there is some um, heightened sensitivity from some of the organizations. And so I think if you are a not-for-profit or you are a charitable organization, you need to be aware of the fact that there will be some increased scrutiny over what you're doing. And mm -hmm. from, from an organization perspective, you know, the, what's, what's really at risk if, if governance goes wrong is the ongoing sustainability of the organization. And so it's not just like, oh, well, you know, that random director was a bad apple, so let's remove him or her and yep. move on. There's all kinds of things. It can threaten your funding opportunities. Yep. It can threaten your ability to go public if you were in the, you know, if you were a for-profit and you wanted to go public. If you have these, you know, rogue or uninformed or misinformed directors, it can really have uh, a devastating consequence for the sustainability of the organization. And it also can overshadow all the good work you did. Of course. I mean, you know, having an organization that's over a decade, you know, and continuously did all this amazing work. And then, you know, all of a sudden you get a board of directors in and, you know, they're paying themselves. They're not following CRA guidelines. They're not listening to lawyers. You know, they're, you know, doing illegal um, voting to get board of directors on. They're, 
you know, like all of these things are, you know, quite scandalous and, you know, yep. also not following their bylaws, a big thing, you know, and people think sometimes they can just change their bylaws. That's another thing that I found interesting. <sighs> I know. Some people, I'm like, you can't just change your bylaws. Like it's right. You know, there is like, there's a process. There is a, it is a process. Like, like yeah. anything in the government is a process. Like you are work, like you are, you know, a legal entity, like you need to abide by legal rules. Right. And, um, you know, like things like that, like, you know, one thing is, um, you know, having board of directors, you know, I've seen boards where they don't want new members on, yeah. and, you know, new board members. You can't do that. Like, right. you know, you have to do a call for board of directors. You have to, especially if terms are up, you can't just yep. who you want on a board of directors. You know, that's a conflict of interest at its finest, yep. uh, you know, financial statements. If a member of your organization or anybody, because you are public, you're like federal or provincial, you know, yep. somebody asks for your audited financial statements, you need to release those. Like. Yep. You yep. can't be hiding them, you know, like things like that. Like I've seen those, like those things type of happening. Um, like it's, I'm just thinking back, like one organization I was working with and everybody just didn't know what to do. Um, you know, they're just starting out as a foundation. I just came on a couple months ago as a consultant and, you know, going through all of this, just an outline even of what you want on your board, you know, like um, some people, like obviously I, I'm in the indigenous sector. So a lot of it would be, you know, I want to have, you know, an elder, I want to have representation from each province, I want to make sure there's First Nation, Inuit, Métis. So doing, you know, even that, having that kind of board policy is important. Like, what do you want on the board? And what do you roles, especially if it's beginning, they're going to be operational to some extent until you get yeah. going, your executive director and those sort of things. So you also want to make sure you have people that are qualified. Yeah. Um, you know, and when you're starting out, some of these, um, like foundations typically start out with money. It's not like they're just, you know, yeah. pulling out of nowhere. So with the foundation, it was easy. I'm like, here's some governance training you know look into it like find people that can help you they'll you know tell you what your role is what it looks like um you know structures like every board is different so sometimes it you is. know they reply like we'll report to advisory councils yep. and the advisory councils report to the board sometimes the ed directly to the board yep. uh, so there's you know how do you want it to look Sorry, I think that's a really important point because not not only are is there the nuance of you know who who do you report to within your organization, but you know your comment about how in, in some indigenous um, organizations you want to make sure that you have an elder and you want to make sure that you're being really culturally appropriate. You want your policies. So so when we think about the long term sustainability of the organization, obviously you need to have good governance, but the governance has to work. And it has to be customized for the organization that that it finds itself in, and that's not a one-stop shop. So once you've got a you know a, a code of conduct, for example, in place, and it's tested a little bit, and you know maybe there's this little disaster that you have to deal with, or you've got some new information, or you have a new elder who wants to provide some cultural training, though your policies don't sit on a shelf. Your policies, that's terrible policy work. If, if you draft it and you put it on a shelf, those need to be tested. They need to be updated. And that's part of a good, good uh, and that governance. And should be in the policy. It needs to be updated. That's right. It should be reviewed years. on a, yes, on a certain I cycle. I agree. Yeah. Yes. Like I do agree. Like a lot of the times things will get written and sit on a shelf, right? Like, and no one ever yeah. sees it. I feel like it's like when my husband does budgets for me, it just kind of like sits on my hard drive. And I never review <laughs> You're it. Like, great. That was yeah. Helpful. Yeah. I was like, oh, and I went over quite a bit. Okay, cool, cool. Like I'm glad it told me. Right. Uh, yeah. It's you know, it's those sort of things. Like, you know, how do you like and a code of conduct is so important and an HR policy, even if you're small, you should have these things. And you know, and they can change as your organization grows, but but you need to level set with having some 
expectation and managing people's expectations about what what do you expect of their conduct and how can they expect to be treated as well, right? Like it is for the good of the organization, but it's also for the good of attracting very qualified people to yes. come to your organization. Like your comment was, if you're asked to, you know, to, to help a board or to join a board, you have a bunch of questions. I want to see your bylaws. I want to see your policies. And it's a red flag if an organization's like, well, not yet. We don't really have well, any interesting to me because you see these like super qualified people on these like pretty yeah. big boards. Like I, I can think of like at least six or seven organizations off the top of my head. And I've been asked to join those boards and I've asked them like financial statements most have like that's, sure. that's a yeah. given but policies, nothing. You know what I mean? Like there's, just, there's nothing, there's no code of contact. There's no board policy. Like what am I expected to do? What am I expected to bring to the table? Yep. Um, what am I expected to oversee? Yep. Uh, like things like that. Like, what is my role? Like I need to know um, things like that. Also like finance policy, a lot of organizations don't have that. And it's yep. so important because how does a board or, you know, senior staff know what they can and cannot do? For sure. Um, for sure. Even things oh, like, like something so small as that, like it's important, you know, it could be put into the finance policy easily, but you know, people need to yep. know these things. Like, are they going to be covered? Like are board members going to be covered when they do these meetings? Like, yep. especially because they're national organizations, you're flying from round around. You need to ask that. Do you have, you know, 15,000 a year to travel to board meetings or are they paying for it? Right. Even things like privacy policies, which apply to every organization, how is your personal information as a board member? Who is that going to be shared with? Cybersecurity, social media, like it doesn't really matter the size of the organization or the sector, whether it's nonprofit, charitable, all of those things are a thing now. All, every, you know, everybody uses social media or it's, its presence is everywhere. Cybersecurity is a big thing. And so I think a lot of organizations, or a lot of small boards think, oh, that's that doesn't matter for me because I'm not at the size that it even matters. Yeah. And that's where they get caught. Yeah. And like, I, I think about that all the time, actually, just like, how is it being stored? And, you know, right. how often does charitable, um, like as a charity, you can't get rid of records. It's not like a business where it's every seven right. years, you right. need to keep on to these things. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually, I've thought of that before. I'm like, how is this information being used and you know, what is being done with it? Yeah. And people just have to be really conscious of, of sort of the environment that they work in, right? Like business, the business environment these days, it's required that you have a privacy policy. It's required that you treat people's personally identifiable information sensitively and just to level set and, and manage expectations. Um, I want to, I want to shift a little bit um, when you talk about sort of the programs and the, the education that's available there's a number of organizations that can provide, you know, very comprehensive um, training. And, and sometimes that's a barrier to organizations because they can't afford to send everybody all at once. Or, you know, some people have, have some degree of training, but but not others. What's a, what's a manageable way for an organization? Like, is it worth hiring a consultant? Is it worth hiring a governance expert to say, I want you to do three hours you know, once a quarter or something like that, what's the best way for organizations that might not have a bunch of money to spend on that to get something that will help them in terms of the sustainability of organizations? What are your thoughts on that? I have a couple of options because every organization is very different, right? Like yeah. how they're doing it, what they're doing, what their outcomes are, how involved they actually are. Like it might be a nonprofit charity, but it's not something that's trying to raise millions of dollars. Sure. It might be something that just wants $70,000 a year for back to school backpacks. You know, sure. like it depends on the scale of the organization. 
Um, some of the things I would recommend for sure is getting a consultant. I highly recommend working with someone yeah. um, just for the part of like what you should have in place. Like, so like for me, like I do, you know, what documents are necessary, what documents you can work on later, but yeah. before you even get people on your board, you should have these in place first. Makes everybody feel safer. Also makes everybody, you know, it kind of lifts a lot of the obligations and responsibilities off them. Um, another thing I would recommend if it's too expensive um, for training, you know, one thing you could do is just train your executive director or your CEO president. Yep. Um, they're the ones that are probably going to be with the organization the longest. They're the ones that are going to go through, you know, 20 some odd board members over the course of their term. If they stay sure. there, you know, if you're a good board, they'll stay for longer. And if you pay well, um, but yeah, you do, you train them so that they are there as like a source of information. They can provide whatever documents they maybe had received from their training so that everybody's kind of on the same page. You know, they can mm, provide the links, the resources, all of that stuff. Um, another option is what I did. Um, I didn't have a bunch of money for training. So what I did, I contacted a lot of organizations that have governance training and I had asked them, you know, is there, you know, bursaries, is there grants? Like, what yeah. can I do? And every single one I reached out to, except for one, um, all gave it to me substantially lower. Like one that was $750 I got for $75, one that wow. was $1,500 I got for $250. So there is so many options out there. You just have to ask. Um, there's also, um, there's an organization, it's called Charity Law. Um, and I think it's charitylaw.ca. And he has so much, like he's just a wealth of information. I follow him all the time on all his accounts and he's wonderful, very, you know, affordable courses. Um, very, you know, like even as much as like receiving a donation, you know, things that you just don't right. think about. Think about, right. Yeah, so like there's just a lot of options out there, um, but I definitely recommend if you have the budget, it doesn't hurt, you know, like, or even maybe getting one person on your board that has the designation for charities and being, or sorry, not um, for charities, but for being on a board of directors. Yeah. So making sure that at least one person has that designation um, so that they still have at least some of the responsibilities lifted from the organization, so to speak, you know, like, so if you have that designation, also be cautious of the board you're going on because you are bringing your level of expertise. So you are expected at a different level. That's right. But there is always ways around it. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think, I think there's a lot of opportunity to sort of uh, transfer that knowledge to other people. So if somebody does have that, that expertise, draw on that expertise and ask them to, to do a little, even if it's 10 minutes, give us a little refresher on what is a fiduciary duty. Just sort of set the expectation for education and for making sure that not everybody has to learn the same things. And so if you have a, you know, a CPA, for example, maybe there's a course that they can take about the charitable um, aspect that not everybody on the board has to take but then once they receive that information there's some mechanism for that to be shared for that for them to you know just d disseminate that information yeah really and like a lot of the board. designations have you know training on the side that's included right. in the membership fees that you guys pay annually right for your designation right. like a, the governing body and they have these training seminars that are usually free or relatively you know low cost right so taking that and, you know, bringing it to and sharing the wealth and the knowledge, you know, that's a great way to do it because it's also coming through the lens of an expert. If I were that's to right. take a training on, you know, charitable CPA, I would have no idea. It would just go right over my head. Right. Uh, so having someone who kind of explains it to you without the jargon, you know, yep. high level makes a lot more sense because there's a lot of information I wouldn't need to know because it's not right. like I'm doing tax returns or something. That's right. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's super, super helpful. Um, and also making sure, you know, even... If you're hiring or looking and seeking for board members, again, making sure you have a board policy prior to and it's some sort of a skill matrix because you right. don't want just anyone applying. You want That's to right. have those things filled and you want to make sure that they're aware of 
who you are, what your mandate is, what you want as your deliverables. Um, Also having a plan, like a three-year plan or two-year plan as an organization, where do you want to go? You know, like strategic planning sessions are so important prior to asking for board members. So then you also have a better understanding of like, what is missing? You know, what could we use more of? Um, What could we use less of? You know, like sometimes you get boards that are heavy in one space versus another. And then, you know, you basically just have six people with the same same skill set. Yeah. Yeah, It just doesn't make sense. Like they're giving the same point of view. You want to have diversity on your board you want to have different viewpoints you obviously want to mitigate you know confrontation but it's okay to have those discussions because that's where you know big ideas grow and that's where organizations grow you know, going back to your comment about how it's really important to have a code of conduct, you can have conflict as long as you have it productively, as long as you know what the rules of the game are, you know that people, if you express an opinion that differs from common opinion, people will respect that, they'll ask questions, like it needs to be a safe space in order to do that. I want to pick up just briefly on on one of the um, one of the flaws, I, I, I don't know how else to say that, one of the challenges that I often see with nonprofit boards, and you've alluded to it, is when you think about the skills matrix and you think about the qualifications of the of the humans sitting around that table sometimes you it's really heavy in a particular industry so you'll have a lot of people with with expertise kind of in in a either government relations or or whatever the case is and maybe you're lighter on some of the other skill uh some of the other skill sets that would be appropriate for this board one of the things that i that i have seen often is that especially in the nonprofit space is that the board size is ridiculous. Like you'll have 25 directors or you'll have 15 directors. And even if you had 15 different skill sets, it's so difficult to go around the so table. Unmanageable. Like, so unmanageable. So unmanageable. I remember in my experience when um, the organization I was with, when we were first growing into a charity, and I, I remember the first two years we did a call for board of directors and our bylaws said, you know, 20 um, like two to 20, I think it is. Terrible. I can't remember at this point what the bylaws had stated. And I remember we had, I think it was like 15 people on the board. And in that entire year, the board did not meet quorum once. Well, that's right. So that's, that's a huge problem. But then even if you did, let's say you had all 20 people there, what can you accomplish? All 15 of them had the same role in their jobs. So all 15 of them would have brought the same, you know, good quality, high quality, but it's the same perspective. Um, And I know like with like boards, you know, they're afraid of change and they, you know, they don't want to have, you know, too much of this or too much of that, but you really need to have those different perspectives. You really need to have, um, you know, say like an indigenous organization, there's no reason why you can have like non-indigenous. There's no reason they should be on the board as well. You know, like, I'm not saying that, you know, they're the vote. Like, I think it should be 75% indigenous. Sure. Um, but having that perspective and having, you know, their experiences, um, I think it's so important and having BIPOC on your board, like it's just, you know, there, the diversity is so important. And, you know, like a lot of the board of directors, if you ever go out there and look, I did it. Um, you will find that the majority of it is men and, you know, women are less likely to go on boards. Um, women are less likely to put themselves forward. You'll see like a lot of, um, and a lot of the men are the same kind of fields. You know what I mean? It's a lot of CEOs that go on boards. It's a lot of, but you don't see the people that are actually doing the background stuff or the ones that are actually doing, you know, the work. 
and they should be on the boards because they're usually the ones that are developing these documents and the ones that are actually implementing them. So they have a little bit more um, knowledge other than just telling someone what to do. Right. So I've, I've noticed that quite a bit, even on some boards I've been on, like it's, I'm lucky the two boards I, I actually do a lot of work with now. Um, one is all female. I love it. Oh, um, <laughs> the other one is predominantly women and it's strong women. Like we're talking like doctors and accountants yeah. and media personnel. Like it's an incredible board. And it was my first time. I was like, I've never seen so many women on a board. Like I was genuinely excited. And then I was yeah. like, oh my God, do I belong here? But my <laughs> expectations are different, right? Like it's from right. a different perspective. So I was like, I feel like this is really intimidating. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, interesting. Wonderful. Interesting. I want to um I want to get your thoughts. I know that there's an event coming up this fall called Indigenomics She, and that's a an, an event that is going to be focused on some education, on some training, on some ability to learn some different perspectives. And I know that you've been involved with that uh, organization. Can you give our listeners a little a little bit of information about what that's all about? Sure. So Indigenomics She is in Vancouver. It's um, at the Sheridan on the Wall, um, yeah. beautiful hotel, actually. And it's put on by Indigenomics Institute. So Carolyn Hilton, um, who started the Indigenomics Institute a couple of years ago, uh, she is the one that's, you know, fighting for change, um, advocating, you know, contributing to the Indigenous economy, the 100 billion Indigenous economy. Yeah. So this event is really just putting a spin and including the voices of Indigenous women, two-spirit, non-binary and trans um, you know, and what they're doing and what is out there for training and information. So she has a lot of workshops and training, um, not necessarily governance, but a lot of policy training. Um, you know, there's going to be like what you should do as a corporation, like yep. even if you're not a nonprofit, but as a for-profit, like what should you have, what policies are needed? Yep. Um, so she has that training. She also has like information sessions with, you know, leading CEOs, women who have these multi-million dollar companies and what they had to do and, you know, what was their experience, their trial and errors and how they overcame them. A lot of people think like you just wake up and you have this amazing business and don't realize really what went through Not that goes. <laughs> and the many mistakes that were made and what you learn from them. So sharing that knowledge also helps prevent making those mistakes. Right. So it's going to be an absolutely amazing event. Like currently right now, I think she's got about 200 people registered. Um, so it's going to be nice sharing of knowledge. There's also going to be a marketplace for shopping, which is, you know, a must for me. Um, <laughs> I need an excuse always, but yeah, it's going to, it's going to be a wonderful event. Um, hearing from experts, you know, people who have been through it, not just talking heads, but people that are actually going to go through it with you. It's not right. just like, it's not presentations. It's, you know, hands-on engagement. Yeah. And I, I really like that. I find for me, that's more valuable than when you attend conferences and the people are just talking at you. I don't think that could be any more annoying in the entire world. Well, uh, I think it's it's so important to have that engagement because then you can ask the questions that are relevant to you. And often when you ask a question, other people in the audience have a similar question or similar experience, and you can learn a lot of real life things as opposed to sort of theoretical things that- uh, Exactly. And I think that's more important. Yeah. yeah. And um, she has like a networking too, which is pretty awesome. So she's made sure to include that quite a bit so that people can actually talk to these people one-on-one. Like I know when you're in large settings, it's difficult. Like a lot of people don't want to put their hand. I don't mind. Like I right. have no problem. Um, but I also took training to not be embarrassed around people. Like I did stand up and um, improv so that I oh. would do public speaking. So Interesting. Uh, yeah, so she has it for networking. So it's just going to be great. Like people are going to be able to ask those questions and then there's going to be booths. So people for information, not just shopping, yep. uh, you know, <laughs> to be able to engage with them one-on-one and really, you know, learn more and not feel embarrassed or feel shy or you know whatever is people's everybody's comfort zones are different right like it just depends what your comfort zone is yeah 
Cool. Well, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, attending that event, and I think there'll be. I'm actually looking forward to your session. Ooh, well, uh, that's <laughs> a lot of pressure. Sure like a notebook and pad. You're like, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll that'll be great. Where can our listeners find out more about you? So I have a few places. So myoungcrook.com is my website for consulting. And then I have indigimal.net. So it's an online platform to shop indigenous uh, merchants. And I have crookedbear.ca, which is, um, I sell candles, bracelets, and clothing attire. That's kind of a little bit tongue in cheek for indigenous stuff. Um, yeah, and on Instagram, it's Indigimal, um, and for Crooked Bear, it's just Crooked underscore Bear. Cool. And then for myself, I don't actually have a lot. I'm not a big social media person. <laughs> well, that, that's okay. We can still reach out and find you. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, I had a wonderful time. I hope uh, other people enjoyed the podcast. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. It was so great hearing from you and hearing your perspective. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you have a lovely remainder of the day. Thank you. Thank you for joining the podcast today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow to get notified when we have an update.